this is information that they don't currently, well, they have access to it, but it's not something that they're actively looking at and interpreting. And we are doing that. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of That Tech Show. It's another episode, it's a new year where we discover, wow, I haven't done it for so long, can't remember what it is. The magicians behind the magic and something, something. (laughs) (laughs) There's something magical about it anyway. Are we leaving that in? I think we're leaving that in. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Well, uh, welcome listener. Welcome. Thank you for joining us again for season two. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited for uh, for season two. We've got a fantastic lineup of uh, many names of uh, people and things you would have known about. See, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and the translation for that is uh, is CEOs and CTOs and various other people from companies that you've probably heard of, or well, you definitely have heard of them. Uh, yeah. So we've got a really good lineup coming. Interviews we've already done. Interviews we've got coming up. There's plenty of stuff coming this way. And I just want to say. Thank you to all our listeners who have stuck by us up until this point. It's been a, it's been a crazy old year. Um, what is it? Forty one, forty two episodes down. 40. We're on to episode forty three today. There we go. And uh, yeah, so we just want to thank everyone for for joining us along the ride, engaging with us on the, on the socials, and kind of giving us feedback and and just just making the show worthwhile. Really. So uh, thank you, thank you, dear listener. Well, it's a new year. What's uh, what's been what's what have you been doing since December? I guess was our last episode, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I don't know. I think the break uh, for me has been more of a mental health break than anything. I think the uh, everything gets a bit on on top of each other, and uh, uh, I think I might have mentioned in previous episodes about having being diagnosed with ADHD. That's uh, that's been an exciting journey, taking on medication and things like that. So. I don't know. Does my voice sound different? Do I sound calmer? Do I look less fidgety? No, you look just. All right, good. Well, I'm glad I've managed to maintain the maintain that. But uh, no, it's been good to have a bit of a break. To be honest, I've been doing too many things, which I think is a a a, a hallmark of those with ADHD. So for me, uh, this uh, this this has been a, a break for um, getting myself together. I think. Although we've still done plenty of recording, we just haven't had the uh, the pressure of getting the episodes out. We took that off ourselves, didn't we? So, yeah, uh, going nice and fresh into season two, I suppose. Yeah. Fresh. And how about yourself then, Sam? Um, same as you. I mean, oh, oh, you know, just to bounce off of that a little bit, like over Christmas, I think Christmas and and sort of the end of the year was a bit of a. A resetting period like I, I sort of you know looked looked into myself a little bit and uh, thought about a few things and what's important to me and what I want out of life and all that kind of stuff and um, I realized I friggin hate looking for clients <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided as a company um, to not do that um and and feel less and feel less dependent upon you know clients to to make my living and i sort of set myself a challenge the first sort of three to six months to start building up some form of some might call it a legacy some Mm. might call it passive income stream Mm. uh but i've been focusing on like uh writing books and i've got some courses that i want to produce and and commu- and a community as well. I want to kind of introduce, but I want I don't want to go too much into it because, of course, I have a book to launch and a podcast to promote it on. So uh, we'll save that for another <laughs> day. But I have just released a book, which is uh, which was the fir- hopefully the first in of many. What's uh, the title? What's the title of the book? It's called uh, uh, Lingo Agile. Lingo oh right, okay. On Agile. So it's uh, it's basically agile definitions, agile terminology, but. Um, simplified like without any of the yeah. gump and cutting through any kind of jargon and things like that the jargon Debunked. buster books Debunked, that's cool yeah that's cool yeah. i like that i like that as a because i have that problem with computer science as well you know i mean obviously I'm, i i've studied it i have a degree in it but i hate all of the terms that people use mm-hmm. and i often find that people are just using overcomplicated terms um 
I don't know. I feel like it's sort of self-serving. <laughs> and <laughs> you know? I think with with the book, it gave me the freedom to be a bit more concise about it because if you were to search online for some of these terms, they're trying to get SEO down. They're trying to, you know, build up the word count so people feel like they're getting something when they go to that page. Yeah, Whereas yeah. without that kind of sort of, you know, air quote pressure, I can just be like, duh, duh, duh. you know, just really straightforward and, and, and not, not plain English, plain, plain English, English without yeah. the fluff, you know, so nice. I've got a whole series lined up for that one. The next one's going to be startups, a lot of startup lingo and whatever. Um, I've got one on design, one on development, and then one on kind of gen- general project management. But that one's TBC because general project management is massive and it covers obviously, you know, yeah, yeah. You try and go out there and start looking for project management terms. It's It spans not just websites, but everything. And But anyway, I mean, you can get that on uh, leanpub.com slash agile lingo well that's great i think well we'll have to uh, we'll, we'll have to take an, a whole episode and go into a bit more a bit more depth yeah should we do sure. a sam episode should we should we go into uh should we, should we do an interview of you or should we do a, a, a an interview of the book what are we doing <laughs> let's find out I a bit more know. about sam yeah i don't know i don't think sam's particularly interesting i think the book's got far more to talk about than i have so uh... okay well we'll have an interview with the book then <laughs> yeah, great i look forward to it um great yeah let's do that i there we go. Uh, well, all... we've got another another guest to uh to add to your list of expectations for the uh one of the hosts Ooh. sam how Ooh. exciting is that gonna be we should do you at some point i think we should do you and uh, try and well, get a bit maybe. Of history maybe back, we can do that story. we can do that i think uh let, let's uh let's let me- that mental health break just you know ease out into normal living <laughs> um before we do me <laughs> but yeah. certainly we could do me at some point Anyway, should we talk about who we've got on the show today? Yes, yeah. So it. today, today's guest, our first guest for season two, is Vina Gridhar Gopal. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because uh, Vina is a great guest. And she is the founder of SalesBeat, an AI-driven platform to model consumer buying behavior and make rec- recommendations of optimal stock levels for supermarkets, distributors, and wholesalers. So we're going to be talking a lot about getting this business off the ground, uh, working with an accelerator program, finding a co-founder, pivoting businesses, and a little about her background, traveling all around the world with PepsiCo and Diageo, which has led her to this point. It's a fantastic episode. And Vina is lovely. So without further ado, here is Vina. So hi, I'm Vina. Um, co-founder and CEO of SalesBeat. I've been in the retail and the fast-moving consumer goods sector. So basically anything that you can buy in a supermarket for about 20 years now, starting in sub-Saharan Africa and eventually working in the UK, but for international markets as well as domestic. That sounds incredible. So tell us a little bit about SalesBeat then. Um, that's the platform you you run, you own, or that you're a part of right now? We, I guess, own it. <laughs> So I founded the startup along with Alex, my co-founder, who's the the sort of brains behind the actual platform. And I'm the person with the industry experience and the know-how on how things work in the sector, what problem we are solving, because I used to work very closely with salespeople, strategy, uh, procurement, and sort of linking them all together. Mm-hmm. And this is a, an artificial intelligence-driven platform I'm reading right now, right? Yes. Uh, So we use machine learning to be able to understand how much people want to buy of any particular product in the next four to six weeks. So, for example, we would tell the likes of a a Pepsi how much Pepsi, not Diet Pepsi or any other forms of Pepsi, but how much of a normal can of Pepsi or a six pack of Pepsi people are expecting to buy in the next six weeks based on things like historical sales, of course, and then are people having parties during Christmas? What events are happening out there? Is there a music festival going on? And we can also tell them things like which store the demand is going to be out of the more. So is it the Tesco um, store in uh, Maidaville or is it the Tesco store in uh, Paddington and, and that sort of thing? Wow. That sounds, I, I think that's going to be a very uh, interesting thing to get involved with but let's go right back to kind of uh, you mentioned you you started sales in in africa right 
Well, I started my career in Africa, uh, in Botswana, to be exact. Yes. Was that sort of directly in sales as you as you arrived, or uh, how did that kind of come around uh, there? Because I, I see, are you are you you're not traditionally from Africa, right? No, I'm not. No. Um, so I'm actually a very boring accountant by profession, and started uh, working in sub-Saharan Africa and consulting, working with retail and in the FMCG sector as well, uh, advising companies on things like turnarounds, uh, financial management. Uh, also help them with things like counting. That was very early in my career um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And what, so you moved into the sales side of stuff just from that or within the same company or is it uh, a jump from, because it's a career change, right? It was a career change. So I moved from Botswana to France, lived there for a year while I attended business school and then came to the UK, started working with Pepsi initially in finance because that's my background. So spent a good part of my life in finance strategy, eventually moved to Diageo, where I was setting up companies for them in sub-Saharan Africa, which included finance strategy, sales, helping with marketing and a whole bunch of other things, which was super interesting. And then moved from that particular role into the wine sales function within Diageo, where I was helping them sell into the international markets. So I've lived in enough countries that I know what people want, how people behave, how to position products best and that sort of thing. So this is so strange. We, we, what is it with wine? Uh, we've had two. We have had two previous guests who uh, naked wines and huh. um, palate club. I think wine's just very popular, isn't it? <laughs> it well, yeah, <laughs> it's not hard to find wine in uh, in tech, I'm sure. But uh, so you you were working as part. Of the, uh, what was the name of the company? Sorry, Diageo. So they make Johnny Walker and Guinness. They used to have a fairly big wines function, which they sold off to Treasury Wine Estates, maybe about. Well, in 2015, actually. Are you not familiar with Diageo, Sam? Well, it sounds like a parent brand to me. Is, is it, it is it, a parent it, brand, yes. Yeah, yeah. so... It does, usually it doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> and then I, I need to go through the brands that they own, so yes. I'm familiar with it because I've used I've worked in bars and things like that in the past. And ah. obviously when you when you well, actually through the National Union of Students. So when you're when you're engaging with where you're gonna get your uh, your beer from for all the students, Diageo <laughs> are pretty close to the top of the list because they've got everything. <laughs> <laughs> they must have bought out Guinness then, all right? And or they didn't Interestingly, Diageo was a merger of the company that owned Guinness and the company that owned Johnny Walker. So UDV and IDV. I can never keep track of which one UDV was and which one IDV was, but the two of them merged a couple of decades ago and became Diageo. But you've certainly, um, you know, picked up a couple of cool brands along the way there, working with Pepsi and Diageo, and 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 worked around the world as well. Like you, you seem to, I don't know, where are you from originally? From India. Oh, you're from India originally, and then how many other countries have you taken in along your way? Uh I've lived in five different countries um but i've worked with a lot more than that so i used to travel in very frequently to mozambique to set up diageo subsidiary there used to um travel into european markets to um southeast not southeast, eastern europe um also into southeast asia to set up companies for my clients as well as customers used to travel into a lot of sub-saharan african markets to do pretty much the same thing was that something you always wanted to do the the, the traveling <laughs> yes and no I like traveling so when something comes up which has the potential of travel and meeting new people I never say no I think it's interesting because you meet people that you would never have met if you were just doing what you were doing at your desk all day long so like me and Sam <laughs> <laughs> hey we've got an excuse now it's COVID right <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> No, I think that's incredible, though. So you said five different countries is, is still quite a lot. And then obviously flying out to, to others to try and, well, to, not to try, but to actually go and set up these other businesses. And it's quite incredible, really. I suppose that gives you a really wide view of what people are actually looking for in each of these different locations. Yeah. And you realize that culture influences consumer preferences a lot more than people think it does and the way they buy. And when you do consumer sampling groups and people tell you, oh, we'd buy it if you launched it, you tend to start understanding exactly what they mean. Does it mean they'll actually go into the store and pick up, pick it up from the shelf? Or is it one of those things that they tell you because they know that's what you want to hear <laughs> and, and everything in between? What year was this then, working for Diageo? 
So I was banned from Diageo back in 2016 um, and then freelanced for a bit. So I was an independent consultant for companies through my own company for a while, helping them with sales, new market entry, strategy for new product development and that sort of thing. And then founded SalesBeat in 2019 with my co-founder, Alex. How did you find the, the freelance life, the contractor life? Um, it was all right. It was fun in the fact that I met a lot of new people and met a lot of new companies. And there was a real variety in, in what I was doing. And I quite enjoyed that because it gives you an opportunity to work on different projects in different places. I traveled a lot during that as well. What I didn't so much enjoy was the entire process of admin that came along with it that I had to do myself. But I guess it's just part and parcel of, of the whole thing that if you're on your own and working for yourself, you have all the fun stuff like the variety and the interesting clients and all of that. And it needs to balance out with the not very fun stuff like filing your own accounts and um, all of the <laughs> company's house bits and yeah, not very fun stuff. I hate to do that, by the way, just to prefix, I hate doing all that, but I like <laughs> un- I like understanding it because, you know, you might know this from, from running your own company. Like, I don't want to hand something off to someone without first kind of understanding it, you know. Yeah. I still haven't got an accountant. I could hand that off, but I'm adamant that I want to understand it and learn it before handing it off. But uh, Chris will tell me I need to get an accountant probably. Oh, you need an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it makes it easier that I am an accountant and I'm a qualified UK tax and UK financials accountant. Even though I might not be able to practice anymore because I'm severely out of touch, I can do what's needed for um, my own company. So that's a good question. And do you rely on accountant for your own company or do you do it all yourself? No, I do it all myself. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah go on, Sam. Why are you saying wow? You're doing it yourself as well. Because I'm one person. Oh, all right, fair I'm enough. presuming Salesbeat is much bigger than just one person. I'm a, I'm a, a sole director of my own limited company and then kind of outsource it and all the rest of it but um i mean how big is sales beat so the the development side of the company is big the non-development side of the company is me so yes i do it all myself so we just decided to go very lean because one of the things that alex and i were very keen not to do is raise a lot of money in the initial stages when we are likely to get super diluted and then it just doesn't make sense eventually. That's cool. So, I mean, this is the this is the hard part of starting a, a startup, right? You know, figuring out how you're going to compensate people, how you're going to not dilute um, as much as possible. I mean, talk, talk me through a little bit of that journey of like, you know, where did the sales beat idea come from first? Let's, let's do that. Yeah. So sales beat actually had a very different incarnation when we started in 2019. So I'd applied to Antler, which was starting in Sweden at that time. So they had their first cohort in Singapore, and they'd done particularly well. So Antler's a startup generator that invests in interesting startups that they think have potential. So they are in the business of putting people together to form companies. And if it makes sense for them to invest, they do. We were part of the first cohort in Sweden or even in Europe at that point. Met Alex through there. And we founded SalesBeat, which back then was a marketplace that connected fast-moving consumer goods brands and freelancers. Because Alex and I were both freelancers. Alex on the tech side, I was on the um, fast-moving consumer goods side. And I used to do things like finance freelancing, strategy freelancing, sales, corporate development, and that sort of thing. And people don't know that it exists in this sector. (laughs) When they think freelancers, they think design, marketing, or tech. They never think finance, strategy, sales. Yeah, that's quite that's quite unique, I think. Are there, are there many of you out there or are you an extremely rare breed? No, there's <laughs> enough out there and we find it difficult to find new customers because there's, there's no marketplace facilitating this, which is why this was the initial product that we had. And then when COVID hit in early 2020, Uh, we found that companies started focusing on people that they had internally because they were sitting on too many people who weren't able to work because they were working from home. So they started parceling out all the work that needed to be done to existing resources who weren't coming into work on a regular basis. 
Mm. I think the role as a consultant, though, gives you a, a sort of unique perspective. I mean, this is a role that Sam and I have played, you know, as well, because you're in so many different places. You know, as we've just talked about, your your extensive traveling around the world gives you a very unique perspective on what's required in each area, I guess. So, so that puts you in quite a unique place, I guess, to come up with the idea. But what was the actual what was the actual trigger with it when you'd met Alex? The fact that we were both freelancers at that point. And there was also the fact that I already had a nugget of this idea when I started with Antler. I knew this was a problem that I was facing on a regular basis. And I would have loved to have a marketplace to find clients to work with or to find willing people. Because a lot of the times what you do is you meet someone, you develop a relationship, they don't need any help at that particular point, And then you keep that relationship warm until they need someone. And it's it's a long-term gamble because a lot of the times they may never call you back. And at that point, you need something to work on. So a market just marketplace just makes it easier. Mm-hmm. But a marketplace is a huge thing to go about building. I mean, I think um, it, it sounds very daunting to me. I mean, if, you, if you're getting together <laughs> with, uh, with a new co-founder through a startup accelerator, how did you go from having that idea of we would like to build a marketplace to actually going okay, when we will have it live? Who do we need to have involved in this? How are we going to actually do this thing? Well, if you think about it in very simple terms, it's not that complex. What you need is a pool of people who have a need on one side for freelancers in this case. And then on the other hand, you need freelancers who need gigs. Even if you're working off Excel, (laughs) you just need the two lists and look at what skills each of them have and then look at what the need of the companies are and match them. As in, that's in effect a marketplace. That's how we started. Right, I see. I think this is the um, this is the difference from having a sales and strategy brain to having a tech brain. Because immediately, I'm 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 processing this and going, "Oh my word! How am I going to how am I going to string all this together? What you know? What what sort of services am I going to need? What's the front end going to look like? What's the database structure going to look like? I'm trying to design the architecture in my head, and actually, you've just simplified that and cut straight through to well, we just need a spreadsheet, don't we? Um, <laughs> so, is that how you actually uh, connected with Alex? Then did were you able to to sort of say, okay, well, this is how we're going to get this off the ground, and then this is the platform we're going to build in the background to support it? Is that the the approach you took? Sort of, yes. So um, we did this and Alex basically wanted to observe what, how the interaction was happening and what sort of emails were going back and forth, what the communication needed to be, whether there needs to be a contract. So we literally took the Excel model <laughs> or the Google Sheets model and looked at what were the different actions or the steps that needed to be taken. And then Alex literally translated that into what that meant from a tech solution perspective. See, I like that. I think that's a really good approach. That's 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 surely that's MVP. That's you know, just getting something. Because I, I was often, I maybe it's in the lean startup or something. I you know, it's like so many companies are literally just doing it behind the scenes. It looks like a tech platform from the surface, and I'm not saying that's what you guys were would making it appear to be but there are examples where it looks like a tech platform on the surface but really it's just a few emails being flown flown around and then people behind the scenes kind of like filling in their excel's database and just building on top of that that's yeah yeah well, i think the example in the lean startup if i remember rightly was um dropbox was it when it was just a um just a video i think like they just sold the concept and it actually didn't work and i think they raised millions off the back of that they did yes that's true they did yeah, Alex is the, is a great fan of the whole lean startup methodology as well. So whenever we are looking at new features, launching a new product, he basically looks at validation first. It's all about, do we know what's actually needed before we build it? And then he basically sits and lets it uh, breathe for a while, <laughs> using a wine analogy, um, before he starts building it to make sure he knows for absolute sure that it is needed and we are not just building something for the sake of building something. I mean, I'm curious as well. I mean, the, the you know, you, we talked before about uh, dilution as well. So if the idea was your idea, I mean, I don't know how much you want to divulge this, but how did you decide to sort of split up the the, the equity and the, the business setup behind it? So for me, it was important that I work with someone who had as much invested in it as I did. And when you have unequal splits of equity, you start having issues around control and 
decision making and one person feels like they aren't listened to, it, it just creates issues that none, neither of us wanted to face going forward. And someone did need to build the marketplace. So it wasn't like I could do something with this myself. So we just went 50-50. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And so with the, with the idea of bringing on other people into that startup, how are you going about that? Are you rewarding them? Are they working on sweat equity? Have you, um, have you actually created some equity pool for them or are they just getting compensated in a, in a, in a normal way? I mean, that's that sort of growth bit of I'm going to start bringing people on. I, I'm, I'm incredibly curious about. Yeah. So we were lucky. We got some investment from Antler and then we actually did an accelerator in the US called XRC Labs who specialize in consumer goods tech, uh, retail tech and that sort of area some consumer tech as well. So they invested in us and then we raised a pre-seed round early this year, actually. So we've been one of the lucky ones where we could afford to recruit people. And we basically did a combination of salary and equity, but not equity, but option pools. Uh, That's interesting. So how much do you set aside for an option pool and how did you come to that conclusion where I presume Antler and the other accelerator were quite fundamental in guiding you on some of this as well. Oh yeah. So Antler has a policy that you need to set aside 80% for equity pools. Okay. Yeah. And so how much did Antler want to set aside for themselves? <laughs> so it's, it's been changing over the past few years, but in the first cohort in Sweden, it was a 12% equity stake. Right. And, and in, in return for what? Was that a different amount for different companies and the different values? or No, it was the same amount for all the companies in that particular cohort. Um, this was a, if I remember right, it was $110,000. Right. Okay. I mean, how far does 110000 take you on the journey? Well, if you're good with money, quite far. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> with an accountant and someone who's lean, lean startup, it's going to get you very far by the sounds of things. Yeah, plus Alex and I weren't really paying ourselves properly in that first year. And it was, well, when we say pay ourselves properly, as a we weren't taking any salaries. Um, and then we started paying ourselves in the second year uh, when we couldn't sustain the not paying ourselves bit. So it runs for quite a lot if, if you go that way. Yeah, and I think these are the hard these are the hard things to go through, right? You know, actually trying to trying to get it off the ground, not burn through all the cash, try and make the sales. So, I mean, did you have some specific targets you were trying to achieve sales wise as you've gone through these? Is that three funding rounds essentially you've gone through with two with two antler and accelerator and uh, and the pre seed? Uh, yes, I wouldn't necessarily call them rounds, full rounds, because. The ones with Antler and the Accelerator were basically part of the programs themselves. And, but yes, essentially. Did you have like a specific, all right, we've got to get this many sales to make sure that the sales are starting to balance out and the company is starting to generate income and we're not just burning through the cash? Yeah, so we have metrics for those. So we basically want to be generating at least 5000 to $10,000 a month and that sort of thing. So you set revenue targets for each of the rounds that you're going with because if you don't have revenues and you're still raising or you raise a large amount, you're basically diluting yourself massively. And that's not going to be an attractive prospect when you're growing and you're scaling up and you need that for moving to different markets or employing a much larger team and that sort of thing because investors are not going to want to invest in a company where founders don't have as much of a stake. How are you actually going and getting these clients at the moment? Is this all based on your network from 20 years of experience in doing this at the moment? It's a combination of network as well as social media, basically translated LinkedIn for us, um, as well as a lot of cold emails. And the thing is, we just happen to live during times when stockouts are spoken about a lot. And we are currently in the process of eliminating stockouts. That's what we are in the business of doing. So when you say stockouts, just unpack that term for us, because I think I'm, I might even know what you mean, but I'm sure that some of our listeners maybe might, might be confused as well, or they all know it and I'm just an idiot. It's the stockouts that you see in supermarkets at the moment. So when you go to a grocery store to buy your skim milk or your Christmas gifts or 
even things like turkey for Christmas, for example, it's the whole fact that a lot of them aren't available at the moment. There's a real shortage of products on the shelf. Walker's crisps. It's not like the UK doesn't have enough potatoes. It does. What's stopping them from making them? <laughs> yeah, the supply chain issues, I suppose. So we're talking about the, the empty shelf side of things. There. Exactly. Yes. So that's what we are in the business of eliminating. So how do you eliminate that? By making sure that retailers know exactly how much sales to expect in the next few weeks. And salespeople are completely in the loop. So a lot of the times what happens is retailers place these orders and salespeople just take them in a lot of the times, depending on how good they are. Sometimes the salespeople go in and challenge that and say, hey, you only place an order for 3,000 cases. Sales volume is expected to be five in the next few weeks. You need to place a bigger order. But most of the time it doesn't happen. Yeah. Can I just bridge a gap here? Because I might have missed something. So you, you with Antler, it sounded like you were building a recruitment platform and you are getting uh, funding for that. And now we're starting to talk about what I, I'm assuming is sales. But ha- yeah. maybe I missed something there. Ha- what happened in between? Oh, COVID happened in between. Interesting. So it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't like your idea you know, it didn't have legs or whatever. It was just circumstances that changed. So, okay. So do you want to talk about this bridge and then we can jump into sales beat? Sure. So uh, early 2020, we had just been accepted into an accelerator in the US. Alex and I moved to the US initially. And this is when things started falling apart because COVID hit. It became a big thing. Um, Customers stopped using sales speed because they were having huge issues getting raw materials from whichever part of the world they were in to come into their manufacturing entities. Freelancers started looking for jobs because they wanted income security, medical insurance benefits and that sort of thing. And it sort of just started falling apart. And that's when Alex and I had been talking about doing a tool for sales freelancers to be able to speak with companies or communicate with them, which included, for example, how they are selling, what orders they received, and being able to tell this to the companies directly without having to actually send them an email and basically using it going through the platform. Um, So we looked at it and we thought this could actually work in the current scenario where people are working from home. So they're not going to be able to attend sales meetings to discuss this in person. So this would still be relevant for companies to use as a sales process tool or some sort of a, a communication tool within companies. And then we spoke to a lot of different customers and they went, this is interesting, but what would be even more interesting is to understand how much to sell. And I knew from my experience at Diageo that typically companies use last year's sales. So they would basically go, in 2019, I sold so much of, let's say, Pepsi to my customers. And this year I need to sell last year's, plus I have a 2% uplift to achieve to hit my targets. So I'm just going to factor that in and sell. 2% 2% extra for this month. But customers, we never think of it that way. When we go into a store, we go, I need this. We don't go, I bought X last year during this week and I need X plus 2% this year. Or it just doesn't work that way with us. So then we started looking at how do consumers think about buying stuff at store? What influences them? Why do people go into a store during summer and buy a lot of beer, white wine, and that sort of thing versus red wine. What triggers that action? How many people do it? Um, and that's, and we sort of distill that into our machine learning algorithms to be able to predict how much demand is expected. And then we quickly figured out that salespeople don't want to be looking at lots of numbers and drawing their conclusions because that's not what their strong point is their strong point is relationships and selling, not necessarily analyzing data, even though there are some exceptionally good salespeople who are great at analyzing data. So we started delivering this information in a much more concise manner and telling salespeople how much to sell and what actions they need to take uh, along with it. And that's basically how we launched SalesBeat, the new version anyway. Interesting. So just staying on that transitional period then. So obviously these these factors were were brought about by COVID. 
you know, you obviously came to realize bringing, bringing your uh, histories and uh, experiences into play and, and realizing there's potentially a need for this. What was that conversation like then? And how did you go about then validating this new idea, which again, presumably Antler don't have any part of? How are Antler tied to this now? Because it sounds like a brand new idea. It's a brand new idea, but Antler is still a shareholder because it's still operating under sales speed. So we basically just change the business i guess got you so your previous one was still called sales beat this new yes it was okay okay oh yes we decided to keep the name because people liked the name and in the sector we basically say you beat sales targets so there was a period of time when we actually had the marketplace and we had our current product um, and it just made sense for us to have both and then eventually we phased out the marketplace completely and it's now just the sales intelligence tool. So I think that's a really interesting pivot, though, isn't it? To go to to decide to switch, and you know, with COVID being a forcing factor of it. I'm assuming a lot of other tech companies have been through exactly the same thing during COVID. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really interested in where you've landed because my my background many years ago, I was at Tesco in um, in, in an engineering role, and um, it was quite insightful because we they d- <laughs> lightly put <laughs> we would do certain things where we had a, a, an initiative at the time uh, called feet on the floor and the idea there was that they would send people from head office back to the stores so that they could see how things behaved in the stores and you know i was focused generally on the new technology part and this was when you know back in the time when tesco were making tablets that looked like the amazon fire and selling them as the as the, the huddle um, which was a great tablet actually really good tablet and a, a good, good team but i digress we had we had mainframes we had a lot of mainframes and the mainframes were able to do things like uh, sort of it, it would do this sort of stuff that you were talking about in terms of like predictions, you know, so, you know, if it's going to be uh, sunny, then you're going to maybe stock more ice creams, things like that. But I was quite fascinated. And this is like, we're talking sort of 2013, I think, something like that. I'd have to check my CV. Um, when we were actually in the stores and there were gaps on shelves, because we talked about the gaps on shelves before. They had tools in the stores to say, right, well, actually, I've run out of Pepsi. Let's just use Pepsi as an example. They seem to be getting a free advert today. Um, (laughs) uh, They'd run out of Pepsi, so the store manager would place a thing on his little tablet to order some more Pepsi. And he did not know, and I say he because it was a a fella I was working with, but he did not know whether that that truck that was going to arrive that morning had the Pepsi on it until all of the car, all of the trolleys, the cages had been taken off the truck and packed. And then they would, the staff would go into the tech, into the cages and they would take all the cages out to the store and they'd stock up all the store. And once they'd stock the store, they'd go, right, well, which gaps have we still got? Because they didn't actually have a connection between making the order, knowing what was actually arriving on the lorry, which I was fascinated by because that mainframe element that I mentioned before I think was part of the element for why Tesco grew so big and so fast in the 90s. And I was amazed that that gap had not sort of been filled in the sort of, I suppose, 20 years or so between, you know, the big boom of Tesco in the 90s and you know, 2013 we're talking about of knowing what was actually going to be put on the stores to fill the gaps. So I think it's a fascinating area you're going in. Have you seen that sort of scenario in in other places you'd worked or does that seem unique to tesco (laughs) well tesco is actually a lot more advanced than other places (laughs) as a matter of fact so a lot of them still go on the basis of the joint business plans they've agreed with the salesperson at the beginning of the year they just stick to it and to your point what they do is the store managers keep an eye on the stock on a regular basis and they basically order and stock from the dc there's no predictive elements to what a lot of the others use. Tesco's is quite unique. I think there's a couple of other grocery stores. So MS is starting to use AI as well within this area. And they've been doing a lot of work in this area before with their own data scientists, but they are now starting to use a tool which can help them with this. But it doesn't provide full connectivity to the whole space. So you need to have your DC aligned with your stores. And if all these dots are not connected, it doesn't matter if 
let's say the VC has a lot of stock and the store manager doesn't know they need more stock for tomorrow. You've broken the link or the store manager knows they need stock for tomorrow, but the VC doesn't have any. They need to place an order and then wait for Pepsi. (laughs) We seem to be using them a lot to send that stock into VC and it's just broken all the way through. Yeah, I think it's that connection of how how do you how do you bridge that gap? But you're you're bridging into that mainframe space, I suppose, aren't you? Really, of saying this is the this is what you're selling, this is the trends we're seeing in the market. This is probably the do you do you use the weather as a factor as well? Or yes, we do. It's such an important one. Yeah. So taking in all of those different data points to try and say like, we, this is what we think you're going to need, but it's certainly not helping with that distribution center supply chain within the company, I suppose. So we actually interestingly provide this to the um, supplier. So the Pepsis of the world is, is the ones that we actually provide this to, mainly because if you look at the retail side of the sector, they are very set in their ways. They already currently use a tool or have a system or a process, and they don't want to change. <laughs> they never do. Change is never good for them. So we bridge that gap between the consumer and the supplier and tell them exactly how the consumer acts and when they are likely to buy the product so that they are ready. Where are your data points then for the customer's data points? Because obviously you can take in things like the weather and all of that sort of stuff and you've you've got um, presumably some historic data and other information from suppliers, but where, where are all of those other data points to say that this is what the, cons- the, the consumer wants at this particular moment in time? When you say where are all the other data points? Well, well, what are those data points? I mean, where do you where do you get the data from? Do you know, I'm so curious as to where you know how do you get your sales numbers? Like, how do you? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to un- unravel your secret source here, but I, <laughs> it's, I, how do you get the data? Well, that is part of our secret sauce. But uh, what I can say is that we basically map what happens when consumers decide to buy certain products or certain categories of products and map that, translate that into what that means from a data perspective, what influences their decisions, and then source that data. So when you make a connection with a new business, you've got a new a new client, do you say we need your data as well to, to be able to give you better data? Uh, we know because, because it just creates the next level of friction. So what we basically go with is it's a, a plug-and-play solution we can start anytime they want, because it's point of sale data that you can get from Nielsen's or IRI or any of those people. And then all the other data points are ours, because that's what our secret sauce is. Um, And then if they would like to make this a lot more precise and get to within 5% of actual sales, they can provide us with some internal data as well, which includes their advertising spend, what they're spending the money on, and the channels and that sort of thing. In which case, it just becomes a lot, lot better. Yeah. Is it, are there any data points you don't have that you want? Not at this moment. We, we just wish that the point of sale data were freely shared by retailers rather than they sometimes get very precious about this. And that's one of the reasons why we need to go through Nielsen's. What would be really cool if, is if it, it's one of those things where it's game theory where if Tesco wants great sales of Pepsi, they need to treat Pepsi as a partner rather than as someone they need to have a power struggle with and share the data they have freely with Pepsi, which they don't at the moment. There's a lot of data points they don't give Pepsi, like, for example, how much stock are they sitting on? Yeah, yeah. Not available, and they don't share it. I mean, I think it's. I think that that's that side of it is fascinating as well, and that's another element of Tesco that I was so surprised by. I mean, obviously Tesco has come on, you know, leaps and bounds since I was there. So, um, you know, don't listeners don't go away from this call thinking that Tesco don't have information. But <laughs> the, the the one thing is that um, that always surprised me was everybody always talked about how powerful Tesco Club Card was because obviously you have the Club Card, you know how much people are spending, and you know uh, they've got all of your data, and everyone should be terrified. And then when I started there, they were working with Dunhumby. I'm not sure whether it was founded through Tesco or what. I think at one point it was owned by them, but the um, we'll clarify that afterwards. Fact check, please. Uh, the <laughs> but what was actually happening was that the the stores were sending like batches of receipts to Dunhumby, and it was like three months worth of data, and Dunhum Dunhumby would work through that and basically type it in to work out 
what was actually going on and what had actually been sold, but sold. But what it meant was that the the data was always three months out of date, and it all been done on paper. And I was in, absolutely amazed that none of this was actually linked up. So they didn't. They just did not have that facility to know know quickly what was happening in the stores, what was what had been sold, and when it had been sold, and what the demand was. All of their data was at least three months out of date and on paper. Yeah, and I think that's where Nielsen's did really well. They had a connected system with the point of sales interface that would just send the data to Nielsen. So usually Nielsen's data is a week out of date, and that's it. So, I mean, talk to me a, bit, a, little, bit, a little bit more about the, the suppliers then. If, if we're trying to prevent empty shelves in a supermarket, mm-hmm. what, what's happening there is that are the suppliers not predicting their own demand for their own product in, in certain areas? Is, is, that, is that where the gaps sort of arrive? In a nutshell, yes. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. And it's it's because of this whole way that sales gets forecast in companies. It's, it's all based on historical data. It's not really based on what consumers want. So they are using last year's sales data to guide this year's sales, which is never a good way to do this. And for example, last year during this time, you might have had a really cold 16th of December or the second week of December. And this year, we are having a reasonably warm one. And the first week was terribly cold. And those are the sort of things that they wouldn't have taken into account. And they wouldn't have either sold enough or they would have sold too much. If you look at COVID, it's just changed the way people have behaved or are behaving. For example, people are cooking a lot more at home now. So you need to be selling a lot more salt, a lot more oil, a lot more rice, pasta, wheat flour and that sort of thing into supermarkets rather than selling them into restaurants. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, this last couple of years, your historic data means nothing now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm I'm super like interested because I guess we're just trying to dig into your secret sauce here because again like <laughs> how, how how can you respond that quickly I mean typically like a supply chain that can't ramp up and like like that I mean it probably ramp up pretty quickly but you, you, there's still a delay that needs to happen and if you're talking about you know the weather affecting people's buying behaviors that sounds like an incredible insight to have like how, how like you need a prediction model don't you yeah you need to be able to predict what's going to happen yeah right? yeah so how do you do that <laughs> without without revealing <laughs> so how it, do you do it without revealing it how, how do you do it <laughs> your website obviously shows a lot of tweets kind of coming up and and things like that so i pr- i presume there there is some social gathering of data but again this is not predicting that's 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 responsive which is probably it's way better than just going off of last year's data for sure but or even three months of receipts oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean maybe maybe we start with the social side of things like how that, that that's obviously something that's public on your on your website how are you gathering um social data then and, and using that to sort of retroactively respond to um social and climate kind of changes yeah so def- we look at retroactive as well as predictive data because it, when you've sold a lot more at stores, which is, well, I guess, gathered from the social data, you also know how much to sell into because you need to replenish that stock. And the problem that's happening is that replenishment is not the right amount. So it's equally important to be retroactive. And the way we look at social is if people are talking a lot more about a particular brand or a product, especially in the beauty industry, this influences sales quite significantly. For example, a few months ago, there was a a campaign by L'Oreal on TikTok of their infallible range. It went viral. It went out of stocks in places like Sephora and Ulta in the US. Um, Consumers were left really frustrated. They were basically going on saying, why do a campaign if you don't have enough stocks in stores? And that's a sort of publicity you don't want. And that's a sort of thing that we can track and tell L'Oreal, for example, hey, you need to be selling X cases of stock into Sephora and Alta to be able to meet demand based on how we think this campaign could go. Mm-hmm. 
More of a more of a marketing question then. Again, the social stuff is front and center on your website. Why do you think that's appealing to your clients when it comes to trying to promote and sell your product? Because quite rightly, your your product is is all about proactive um, action made against you know supply chain issues or whatever it might be. Do you think people respond to to the idea that you're gathering social data and that you're current with social trends? Do you think that's an appealing factor to your clients? Um, yes, in again, a nutshell, mainly because um, this is information that they don't currently, well, they have access to it, but it's not something that they're actively looking at and interpreting. And we are doing that. Um, so we do talk about that and that's very appealing to them because when they have marketing teams who look at it, they look at this on when they need to launch a new product or do a new marketing campaign, they look at how their social media has gone, how it's appealed to consumers, how people have been talking about it and then come up with the new campaign. It's not been used in sales before. My only um, worry, because I, I'm not sure whether you've, you've and it potentially more of a tech question or whatever i'm not sure if you've encountered this chris yourself but a lot of the tech platforms they're locking themselves down from the data instagram was one of them where you could kind of just skim through all their all the comments and and from their apis and things like that they're locking them down which it's an unfortunate thing for for products that bank on um well not necessarily bank because we've we've talked about future future proofing and all the rest of it from you so it's not just this is not just your only uh, avenue of information but um are you finding that there's uh, your app is having to kind of shift and change with apis that are changing or that, that you know changes within the ecosystem that you're you're so heavily reliant upon so we are still new enough that <laughs> that's not been a huge blocker or something that we need to keep up with quite significantly. But having said that, yes, we f- figure that going forward, that is something that we need to keep an eye on. Or at least have a steady source from an existing scraper or a provider who actually scrapes data, because then we can just focus on interpreting what that means and translating that into sales. The the interesting thing you mentioned there before about TikTok with, uh, was it L'Oreal you mentioned? Yes. Yeah. So you said they'd run out in a couple of different places. How would your product be able to say, actually, it's these places you're like more likely to run out? Are you able to do that? Yes, we can, based on the people who are commenting on it, liking it, and that sort of thing. That's that, That's pretty powerful, right, to be able to say it's these parts of the country that you're going to be, or, or or world, I suppose, these parts of the country or world that you're going to be struggling, people are going to be struggling to find your product. Yeah, for international campaigns, yes, definitely. Are there parts of the world that are more in tune with this type of, you know, proactive supply chain stuff? Or are your clients from all over the world, basically? Or are you finding that the UK is more interested in this sort of thing? Funnily enough, it's the emerging markets that have shown a lot of interest in this. But then if you look at tech adoption, usually they are the ones who adopt technology a lot faster because they just don't have a solution for this versus other developed markets where there are solutions and there's some way to do it. They just don't have any way to do it. So they tend to sort of leapfrog in terms of adopting technology. So we find that Southeast Asia, Africa, these are markets we we get a lot of interest from. And you can obviously, you obviously know the culture there and you'll be, you're able to onboard them a lot quicker because of your past. So that's good. Yep. <laughs> so, well, I, well, what's the, what's the future then for Salesby? What's the direction you're in, you're, you're, you're taking the company? What are your sort of plans? So we, like I said, we are currently focusing on the supplier side of the business. And one of the things that we are exploring at the moment is how to partner with retail and provide them with similar data that they can basically use and work off the same thing as the salespeople. So either by providing a sort of similar service to retailers for them to use instead of their current demand planning tools, or by providing them with an interface for any and all brands that use us, we basically provide them with free access to it. So it's a sort of two-pronged thing that we are exploring at the moment. 
And what, what time scale are we looking at there? Is your goal to be, have that up and running? or? or... Yeah, so we have the report up and running already. And we are actually testing this with this whole scaler that we are going to work with fairly shortly. So yeah, it's it's in motion. And we want to sort of test it, see how how it goes, how much demand we get from retailers, and then scale this out or provide this as an additional service to brands to provide their retail partners with or customers with. In true in true lean startup fashion, as we as we talked about earlier, <laughs> the just in time thing was one of those things that I wanted to dig into a little bit more. Um, do, do you want to describe what just in time being obviously immediate response, and then we can dig into how that's been messed up? Of course, yes. So, just in time was a concept that came up a couple of decades ago, more than a couple of decades ago, um, to do with inventory holding and stock holding at different companies. And it helped them minimize their working capital by holding less stock. And they would then manufacture to demand. So as close to demand as possible. So they don't have stock sitting in their warehouse, eating up warehouse costs, as well as financing costs, because they spent all that money on keeping stock. Now it's being challenged because you have supply chain constraints, which is preventing you from getting raw materials on time, which means that if you don't have enough stock on your floor, you can't sell enough stock to your retailers. And retailers, in turn, if they don't hold enough stock, you might actually run out of stock before you get your new batch of orders from your supplier. And it's just not a space you want to be in because that it's not worth the lots of sales. There was a study done by University of Colorado um, maybe about 10 years ago on this. And according to them, the entire industry loses up to 30% of sales because of out of stocks. And right now, it's a lot more than what we were seeing at that point. So we are probably losing anywhere between 40 and 50% of sales because the brands are not available in store at the right time when consumers walk into buy it. Great. I've just had a thought, and this might, this might be too small fish for you because you're talking about Tesco, you're talking about these huge brands, but a lot of these, I don't know whether you call them start, but there's a lot of these services that you can order your food and, and it within 30 minutes. And it's not unforeseen and it doesn't, and it exists with uh, Prime now and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to affect buying habits um, or, or any, you know, sales be or anything at all? Do you have any thoughts around this, this kind of instant shopping, not just your convenience store type of shopping, more so I'm going to do my whole thing and I need it in half an hour? Do you have any predictions or thoughts around that? So I'm assuming you're talking about the likes of Getter and Jiffy and, and Deja and, and those guys. Exactly, yeah. It's it's one of those that's actually been in existence for a while in the US. So GoPuff is the first one that started this whole instant delivery thing. And this was actually about maybe a good five years ago, at least, if I remember right, maybe even more, actually. And then they skyrocketed during COVID because people needed their groceries couldn't go to the stores and this was a great way to get it during the pandemic and now it's taken off because we find that people like the convenience of getting it delivered at home and getting it delivered quickly now if you sort of look at the future of the space it's a really interesting sort of area that these guys play in because they are basically catering to on the one side a market that is used to instant gratification so in 15, 20 minutes is great. So we did a future of retail survey, a sales beat at, at the beginning of 2020, sort of to understand how to pivot, where to pivot to and that sort of thing. And we found that at that time, it's the older generation that were interested in getting groceries delivered to home because they were not mobile um, or they were in a particular area, which is hard to get to. Emerging markets are a lot more interested in delivery because of traffic constraints than developed markets because traffic wasn't a massive issue there because we had public transport and that sort of thing. Younger people at that point weren't really interested in this because they liked going into the store, touching it, looking at what else is out there and having the freedom to experiment if need be. When COVID happened, it's all just changed. The younger generation has gotten used to getting deliveries immediately because that was the same experience of going to a supermarket and buying it. 
And there's also the fact that there was a certain element of fatigue looking, choice fatigue. So there's 20 brands on a supermarket shelf. Now you have three brands that are available at your instant delivery store app. And that's what you buy. And they quite like that. And that's what they're going for. So there's a lot of change happening in this space. But the question I have, and I think this is a question that many people have, is, is this sustainable? Or is this one of those things where you have 20 different providers and each of them get a tiny portion of sales? Because there's bound to be consolidation. We have like 10 different providers doing exactly the same thing. And are you going to see consolidation along the lines of what we see in retail, where you have the big grocery stores, which have taken up a majority of the market? Mm-hmm. One of the questions I, want, I was already thinking about before we started this call that I wanted to get, and it might not be, it might not be an issue, but it's kind of outside of this just-in-time kind of instant delivery thing. So excuse the, the slight sidetrack. But it, it came up um, last night, basically, an issue around art, relying on artificial intelligence will be the improportionate representation of certain demographics, right? And that's because we're looking internally when it comes to our data and, and our assumptions, like what, for instance, the bias in the data. Exactly, a bias in the data. It sounds like you guys are going out and, and looking at actual social trends and going out there and actually getting that data. So it doesn't sound like an issue that you are going to encounter, but do you have any thoughts or anticipations on how you're going to avoid that bias with regards to your um, artificial intelligence system? Yep. So one of the things we actively do is we look at data of demographics around consumers to basically remove this bias because we know that different people from different parts of society buy differently. If we take a simple case of promotions, a really deep discount is likely to fly really well in demographic areas where, or in areas in the UK where the sort of socioeconomic economic status is not very high and people are not earning a very high per capita income versus other areas. Like, for example, if you go into Mayfair in London, you might not want to do a very deep discount because they might buy the product anyway. Mm. And that's the sort of thing that we actively look at because we know that the majority of the data is what's going to influence the decisions that get taken and the sort of smaller socioeconomic groups might get swallowed up within the bigger whole. So we actively look at locations versus the entirety of the UK, for example, or the entirety of London, or the entirety of Yorkshire, or the entirety of Edinburgh. Mm. Being careful not to generalise, basically. And, you know, you you mentioned that you say Mayfair, those people may not want a a discount. But you know that that could be an assumption that we're making right there, and 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 how how are you going about then actually confirming that information and that data? Like um, we can make you know it, it's fair to say based on historical data that to make that assumption, but as we know with London, everywhere's the next shortage for some reason. <laughs> Different areas are being gentrified; they're being you know changing all the time. How are you then validating that that is indeed a valid assumption? We basically look at changes all the time. And we map the changes with changes in the socioeconomic structure as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is that like boots on the ground sort of work or is that focus groups or anything like this? No, we don't do that primarily because those are a lot more time taking. Plus they are just one-off points in time. It doesn't keep you updated about what's happening now. As in, it could be that this week things are going great with one particular area. Next week, there's something happening there that could change the way people, as in it's not just about socioeconomic groups, but it's just about, let's say there's a roadblock in a particular area. Are people still going to shop at the same Tesco? Or are they going to a Sainsbury's that's around the corner from them, but is easier to get to because the, the road is blocked for Tesco? So we use live data to look at things like that. And we use we use the data to tell us how people are behaving rather than going in and deriving conclusions by asking people what they do. Because that is also the fact that when you ask people how they are likely to act, they are 
very likely to tell you what you expect to hear rather than what they're actually going to do. And you don't want that bias. The trick in overcoming this is to know that you do have a cognitive bias and there is bias in data. Once you know that, you know what to do with it, how to get around it and how to remove it. But if you assume that any data you get doesn't have bias, then you're likely to work with a really biased set of data and get biased results. I think that's really important. And we, um, I think we've talked on this show before about how that's influencing like decisions, hiring decisions in Microsoft or Amazon or various other places. And actually, a, a colleague I, I work with mentioned one to me the other day where he was talking about hiring within an orchestra. And actually that the orchestra were having a cognitive bias and were tending to hire more male musicians than female musicians. So they put a curtain up for the audition process and then they could hear the footsteps as the person walked onto the stage. So they still knew whether they were male or female. Oh. So they asked them to all come on barefoot. And I think that's fantastic, you know, to, to be aware that you are going to have a bias and that I think you only have to look at the AI bots that have been released into the world that our data will naturally bias a bot as well. It will naturally bias an algorithm. So I think it's, um, it's insightful to know that you, you're taking that into, into account. Yep. As Alex keeps telling me, whatever data you put in is what you get out. So if you're putting in biased data, you're going to get biased results. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. I think I've learned a lot and I'm uh, inspired by all of this, uh, this sales data. I'm curious to see how this is going to change and affect the world. And hopefully we'll see uh, fewer gaps on the shelves i suppose because uh, that's uh, that's the bane of everybody's life in in the uk at the moment i guess i think pretty much anywhere around the world as we hear things happening in the us in australia in emerging markets as well about stockouts well again thank you for being on the show no problem thank you for having me so that was vina Thank you, Vina, again for joining us on the show. Thank you, listener, for sticking around and listening to what Vina had to say. And uh, we'll see you next week. And who have we got on uh, on next week, Sam? Stephanie Slocum. Great. Well, Stephanie is going to be episode forty-four, I guess. I so. Yeah. I so. All right. Cool. Well, we'll see you. See you there, folks.